Welcome to episode four of Great Perhaps. John Green, I hope you are listening by now and just a lifelong fan of me, McKay Nelson, and my partner Kyle Jones, just like we are of you. Kyle, what are we going to be talking about today? Today we are going to discuss the Hulu television adaptation of Looking for Alaska. It was made in 2018, 2019, and aired originally in 2019, I believe. And it was written, directed, produced by Josh Swartz and Stephanie Savage, both of Gossip Girl fame, OC fame, other show fames. I love this. I didn't know we were starting with an educational bit of like a little background. Okay, Kyle. I got a little background in me. (laughs) And so I think the conversation today, our goal is to compare and contrast the book with the show and allow for that space to generate some other questions that we have about young adult in general, about John Green, about how stories are told in the context of what is made for young people and how are they interpreting it and taking it. Because in the spirit of a show called Great Perhaps, we really are just exploring stories, especially with young gay audiences. Indeed, and just having a conversation about what we're thinking about and what we make of it all. So the goal is to have no goal, just to learn. We're not going to tie a bow on it as much as I try to. We are not going to. We are not going to. It's the spirit of YA. So Kyle, did you enjoy the show? This was your first time viewing it. I loved it. Yeah, I had a wonderful time watching it. And I think from my amateur perspective, whatever that means, uh, I enjoyed this more than the book. Uh, Just kind of straight up. I think I did too. Really? Yeah, why did you enjoy it more than the book? I've been trying to think of a succinct answer to that ever since I first realized that I was feeling that way. And it has gotten into a space in my brain that is kind of about the maybe the philosophy of narrative and like how we take in narrative. And my answer, I feel like, is something that could be interesting to unpack, like, just for us, of, like, why why do we like this more? And I think, for me, it's the character development and that the character development felt more stout, more fully formed, a little more rigorous, a little more empathetic, a little more thoughtful. And so, in that way, as one that is drawn to narratives often because of characters... Um, and how characters work to drive a narrative. I think that's what appealed to me. And very specifically, I think what I mean by this is, I would, I've would i wanted to ask you this, is, and this might get into some literary theory stuff, but the amount of time that you are offered as a viewer of a television program to simply look at a character feeling things, and they're not necessarily saying words, but you're sitting there and there's a soundtrack and there's a scenery and the character has just gone through something. And in a television show, you'll sit in that space for maybe like 45 seconds. Whereas in a book, I'm just going to keep reading and I'm going to keep throwing words into my brain as opposed to just sitting with that emotion. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There is 
so many beautiful things happening there. I should not be shocked. This is why we are married, because we approach things very similarly. I, too, was thinking about the narrative. I'll try to get to a lot of the things that you just said, because I think you said a lot of really wonderful things. I think it's pretty remarkable that the show finds more time to devote to more storylines in the book, which is really rare, right? Normally a movie or TV show adaptation lose plot points where instead this adds, just as you said, right? There's a lot of prolonged scenes with soundtracks and watching characters emote. The other thing I've been thinking about is the way that the narration is gone. The book is narrated by Miles Pudge, first person, I believe, or third person, Um, limited, which means it's only focusing on one character. So we only see what Miles sees. We only experience the scenes that he's a part of. The TV show does not do that. It takes the narrative lens and views all sorts of characters and all sorts of development. So I think that's definitely part of it, right? Is this narrative all of a sudden becomes a much more intertwined story that follows many characters and sits with them as they experience all of those things. Yeah, and so that kind of came to me. I think I didn't realize even that that was my experience with it, but reading some reviews of the show, and I think it was the IndieWire one, actually. I forget who wrote the review. I should give them a shout-out in the credits. But they were making the point that what Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage have done is take the microphone from Miles, that is to take the microphone from John Green, And so instead of every character through the lens of Miles, what the show does literally and what the show does in this kind of philosophical sense is um, change the camera lens and change the angle and not give it to just one person, but to give it to Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage who are set on giving it to everyone. And so that layering of voice I find really compelling and I feel like it made for a wonderful show and like that's what really drew me in. I think layering of voice is a wonderful phrase. I think the two that I find the best example of this, one is the Colonel, Chip Martin. Um, John Green's been on the record saying he purposely doesn't mention the Colonel or Alaska's race actually in the original book. But in the show, the Colonel is a black actor with this whole backstory and racial experience that just adds incredible depth and emotion and clarity and beauty to the colonel's story. Similarly, I'm also drawn to the eagle, um, the school administrator who has this whole side story of he's going through a divorce, then enters into a relationship and has this visceral relationship with his job and with the students as he tries to struggle with when to be an authority and when to be a person caring for them. So those are two times, those are two voices that get layered on in a way that they were not layered on in the book. And I think the whole enterprise, the whole story benefits from that. It makes me wonder if it is very simply just that it's not a teenager telling this narrative anymore. Whereas like Looking for Alaska, the book was a teenager's version of what happened at Culver Creek in a semester. Whereas this is... I, I want to say an adult look at it, but it's more empathetic, it's more complex, and therefore is digested in a way that is more uh, fully formed. Yeah, I think w- one of the most powerful parts of the show, especially as we begin to compare it to other YA teen dramas, 
is it's not fully an adult voice, I don't believe. It's that layering of voice that you're talking about, that it's adult voices mixed with teen voices to show just this full community at Culver Creek and the way that language is used and narrative tools are used to show this community. They talk about after the tragedy in the middle of the book, the community disintegrates. It's this living, breathing organism of a system of people and their stories overlapping. So I wouldn't go so far as to say it's an adult but it definitely loses that Miles um, immature narration that the book relies so much on. And not to call John Green at 23 writing his first novel immature, but I guess it also moves on from 23-year-old John Green. And I watched a little clip on his vlog of him, and this is one of the many reasons we love him, saying how much he loves that about this show is that and you were talking about this last episode of how much of a devout believer he is that a book belongs to the reader and a television show belongs to the watcher and in this specific case the television show belonged to um, Josh and Stephanie and he was like all in he's like yes take it go it's yours make it work even more I don't know if you stumbled across this, but Tumblr, um, the, I don't know, communal blog site, how would you describe what tum- Tumblr is? I have no idea what Tumblr is. <laughs> right, these like personal blogs, it's a mix between social media and kind of like blog MySpace sphere, right, music and just heavy aesthetic fell in love with the book Looking for Alaska. And so there are all these inspiration boards um, as people were waiting for the movie, then the TV show to come out of the images. For instance, in the book, I believe, Looking for Alaska, it's a white like tulip. It's a different flower, but Tumblr took it over and made it a white daisy, which is what it became in the TV show. So there's a lot of things in the TV show that changed and responded to how fandom consumed Looking for Alaska, the book which I agree that John Green would love that, that they took the thing he created, consumed it, processed it, and created something kind of different and new out of it. Similar with a couple of the lines that like totally blew up. For instance, the, you all smoke to have fun, I smoke to die. And then the other one is when Miles says, um, if people were rain or something like that, she was a, I was drizzle and she was a hurricane. Um, so it's fun to see how the show takes the way that fandom took those lines and plays with them and adds clarity or new depth to them. That's so cool. Remind me of this when we get to our third question, because I want to connect them, but I'll forget to connect them. So when we get to our last question, remind me. I'll do my best. Maybe zooming in a little bit, can you speak about your impressions or your experiences with Um, Dr. Hyde in the television show as compared to the book? Right, we've been both thinking about this and talking about this a lot, especially what's happening right now in our world as we um, discuss how we deal with characters of color, especially black characters in American um, books and TV shows. And so similarly, in the TV show, Dr. Hyde is a black character, and there is... Parts of him that feel like, what is the term that you were telling me about? Exceptional. Exceptional Negro? Yes. Yeah, this is a phrase from Ibram Kendi in Stamp from the Beginning and talks about his theory uh, or his illuminating of the fact of uplift suasion 
in how uplift suasion works by a viewer or an authority figure choosing the exceptional Negro as proof that we do not live in a racist society. So how could we be racist? We had a black president sort of thing. And so he cites it as like one of the number one tasks of anti-racism is to point out where uplift suasion is happening and it often is so closely aligned with the exceptional Negro myth. And I know in literary culture and literary theory and conversations we talk about magical negroes and characters that are black that come with a sense of like spiritual magic to them dr hyde can have both of those at moments because very interestingly he is black and then he also is gay and he has this whole backstory with a spoiler a lover who dies from aids um earlier in his life but i still think he's a very moving beautiful component and character that's rich and round and has depth. I was saying to Kyle that I think part of it is all of the characters are tropey. All of them have elements of something that you could say like, well, that's treating them as kind of this cardboard cutout version of themselves. I think YA often does that. As I've said before, though, what this show does and what I like for YA books and TV shows and movies to do is to take that into dig in deeper. And I think they do that well with Dr. Hyde. He does kind of have this romantic, his clothes are incredible, his house is incredible, he has this very romantic narrative and does not really have his own emotions outside of feel-good emotions, but I still find him a really um, fascinating character that I'm drawn to. What about you? So taking what you just articulated, and I, I agree completely with literally everything you just said. And combining it, what I was reading in several of the reviews, in the ones in particular that mentioned Dr. Hyde, so taking that and taking these reviews that point out that the show in many ways is a form of nostalgia for early 2000s teen dramas. And so because it was made in 2019 but set in 2005, there's almost this playful dynamic to the show of the writers being like, look at how we used to make it because the show is happening in the time when they were making their first teen dramas. So very particularly the OC being made literally in like 2003, 2004, 2005. And so in that way, that that's another like fun layer, like our artistic niche that it is fulfilling. And it is also true then that if it is nostalgic for that time, the teen dramas at that time, that means that the characters are tropey to an extent. But like you said, they are more fully developed in this one. So it's like a little bit of both, mm -hmm. which it starts getting us into, I think, our ultimate question of like how much of that tropey nostalgia should be allowed in in young adult spaces because... There are plenty of ways I feel we could go and talk about it being damaging uh, or maybe kind of harmful or something to be avoided. But at the same time, it's fun to watch television that's nostalgic, uh, especially if teen dramas have been a big part of your life. Well, I just had the thought of Dr. Hyde very much feels like, uh, what was his name, Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. Yeah. He is very Mr. Feeney becomes an older gay black man. Um, and so I think in that way, it's 
it's both fun and harmful. Um, but mostly I think it's fun, right? It's, it's, it's beginning this conversation of how do we bring in this wider representation and much like other characters are treated and why it takes a couple missteps before we get there. But I love seeing the, the play of trying to imagine what if our teachers are not just old white men? What if they are these other types of people that we have in our world? And I love it. And so this got me to the space of uh, Dr. Hyde as a teacher and us as teachers. And I would be interested to hear what you think of if I'm speaking to the tropey part that maybe is a little bit problematic. I think one thing I will hone in on is his perfection in that he always says the right thing. And it's because he's written into a script that is within the image of a tropey Mr. Feeney. But they all say the right thing, whether it's the dramatic thing or the emotional thing or the angry thing, but they all say the perfectly right thing. Which is the complex, right, of a television show. And I guess I'll go ahead and bring up something like Euphoria, which I watched the first episode and found it disturbing for multiple reasons and not something that I wanted to keep watching, but probably will at some point. But it was too hefty for me uh, at the time. And you did watch it and you absolutely loved it. And so I think uh, I would be curious to hear like that perfectionism of a tropey teacher contrasting with something in euphoria or does euphoria operate under like the similar rules of narrative and similar rules of television that you always say the right thing? Like, is it as tied up? Is there a bow on it? kind of how looking for Alaska puts a bow on it. That is a complex question, but my initial thought is no way does Euphoria do that. Um, I also at this point want to kind of bring in some framework of a of if that's okay with you. Please. So I was listening to Jason Reynolds who is one of the greatest YA writers of all time. He is, I forget the exact title, like the ambassador for young people to the Library of Congress. He is just astounding. And he just did an interview with Krista Tippett on on her show, On Being. And he, I'm going to try to remember it to the best of my ability, but I think this would be a good framework for this question. He says that we often conflate our love for our young people with fear and that we try to hide things from them wrap them up in a nice tidy bow, keep graphic storylines and images from them. But when we do that, we damage them because we don't give them the language to process it. And I think the shows that we're going to start exploring all are trying to engage with this question of how do we show our young ones true stories that aren't afraid of graphic things, that aren't afraid of dark things, and how do we give them the language to process it? Do you have thoughts to that before I jump into Euphoria? I just want to give a shout out to this is part of our great perhaps in a very real way in that one thing that we have been alighted to that we talk a lot about is difficult knowledge in the space of pedagogy and education. So very specifically, how do you teach children in the space of introducing them to and walking them through what is difficult knowledge Difficult knowledge kind of has a working definition. It's kind of always being altered, and it's a little bit different in an English classroom than it is a social studies classroom, but it's ultimately about social trauma 
and introducing students to social trauma and then being there with them in that space. Right. So I think this is the framework we want to use of talking about these things of how do these shows approach this? Yeah. So Euphoria, I think, is totally different approach. Um, I don't quite yet know if I'm ready to make a value of which one I think is better. Euphoria was written and directed by Sam Levinson, um, who went through the Euphoria experience and became he got clean when he was 19. It's based off an Israeli show, which I did not know. There's We've just said a lot. I'm trying to process it. Go for it. This is great. You're doing great. What I like about Euphoria is it goes deeper into the darkness than Looking for Alaska does. It's very interesting because Looking for Alaska uses nostalgia and this Tumblr aesthetic to kind of write there are scenes where Alaska's literally like brimmed in gold light that's like filtering over her as if she's Madonna. Not the singer, the (laughs) mother of Jesus Christ. Where Euphoria also has its own form of glamour, right? It has all this this hip-hop soundtrack. It has this like very edgy, gritty, grimy music video feel to its aesthetic. So that comparison alone, um, I think, is interesting. There's also a lot more nudity. There's there's lots of sexual assault. There's rape. There's drug use. There's addiction. Maybe to go back to the original is I was thinking, I don't remember his name, but in Euphoria, there is this drug dealer who is white, who is kind of looking out for the main character, Rue, played by Zendaya. And he kind of fills a similar role to Dr. Hyde of if any character says the right thing, he says the right thing in the show. Um, He is a little bit of a kind of like adult responsibility care filtered down into this gritty teenage drama world. Other than that, I don't think the characters say the right thing in Euphoria. And a big part of that is because Sam Levinson and Zendaya So Sam, the writer, Zendaya, the actress, have talked about the way that Euphoria deals with anxiety, and a lot of people laud it as the best examining of teenage anxiety. So her over, so she narrates over, Rue, the character, um, has a narration over, I'm talking a lot, then I'm going to pass back to you, Zendaya, as Rue narrates, and in those, there's a lot of perfectly tied up statements said about anxiety or depression or addiction. But within the dialogue itself, I don't think characters are as well-spoken as they are in Looking for uh, looking for Alaska. And I think it's because it's not about that nostalgia that Looking for Alaska is. It makes me wonder if it's about a couple things, if we were to extract some concepts in there. I'm thinking of the ex- showing the extent to which an individual is or can be despicable and how... I would maybe argue or point out that Dr. Hyde would look silly in Euphoria. If you just dropped him in there, it would be so jarring as a viewer. You would be like, what is this sage old man doing here saying really kind things? Um, And it's because he lacks that grit. He lacks that edge. Uh, He's this great assuager of anxiety. And so like anxiety never even fully surfaces 
Uh, and so it's not necessarily something that is really dangerous. And so I think about despicability. I think about danger. I also think about being clever and how young adult negotiate young adult literature and viewing experiences operate in those spaces. So if we were to like distill difficult knowledge down to things like anxiety, despicability, being clever, um, grittiness, like there's uh, there's a way to approach those things, but the affect doesn't hinge on them is maybe what I would say. And so what I mean by that is my experience with Euphoria is that the sh the visual experience of the show, the sonics of the show, uh, the music video, strobe light, tough music, harsh music, darkness, the affect, the way I was introduced to the difficult knowledge of, that is the content, the social trauma, that's maybe what like hurt as much as the narrative itself. Whereas looking for Alaska is beautiful. It is sheen. There is like a gloss to it all that we're very used to on major network television. And so maybe that's the nostalgia part of like, this is what TV used to look like, kind of like Wonder Years type stuff. I really like that because it gets into the fact that euphoria feels aggressive. Yeah. It is coming for you and it wants you to feel that. One of the most infamous things about euphoria i think it's like the second or third episode i made you watch this scene because it's a beautiful um capturing beautiful might not be the right world beautiful in a narrative way capturing of the really dark side of masculinity and there's a scene where in a minute two minutes you see 30 penises do you remember this i do yes very interestingly originally it was gonna be ad <laughs> So the fact that like all these reviewers and critics and viewers were like, oh my gosh, and aghast at this idea. But to my understanding, the people who created the show came on the record that part of it was the idea that we treat especially teenage female nudity as a sexual, like consumable thing. But when it's boys, it's gross, it's ew, or it's used kind of, and they wanted to confront this idea in a very aggressive way that like all of a sudden two minutes into the show and you've seen 30 penises and you're like oh my gosh right like that is the point they do that purposefully to throw you straight into this dark rabbit hole that looking for Alaska like has you walk down to the smoking hole beneath the bridge and laugh with your friends and talk about philosophy and smoke some cigarettes and then all of a sudden it's like bam right you get tricked almost into it where Euphoria is like, no, you're, you're coming with us and we're pushing you down. And so to like dig in there a little bit to enhance the contrast, I think about if there would have been images or video footage of Dr. Hyde's partner dying from AIDS. So like Angels in America type uh, exploration of what dying from AIDS in the 80s looked like and really, really showed it. And I, I think about this in the context, too, of because I'm a history teacher, I was thinking 2005, uh, the war in Iraq um, is just underway, and it's just in the wake of 9-11, and that's nowhere really in the television show or in the book, really. Uh, and we mentioned other things when we were talking about the book. There is a pornography aspect to it. But even that is, 
is playful, it's light. It doesn't really dig into things like rape culture, sexual assault on at boarding schools, <laughs> at elite boarding schools. Um, so I, I'm just throwing all those out there is like maybe just illuminating or shedding some light on that approaching difficult knowledge, approaching social trauma, approaching these really complex, like tough, heavy things happens to an extent in looking for Alaska, but the approach is through this kind of glossy, nostalgic lens, which maybe if you want to go ahead and move to kind of the ultimate question that we're bouncing around, what then is the responsibility of a young adult director, writer, producer, author, anyone that's attempting to convey messaging to young people? So this gets into something I had been thinking about around this topic, about the idea, because I'm the English teacher, he's the history teacher, um, the difference between the responsibility to ideas and education and the responsibility to stories, right? Those are two different sets of responsibility that people who create any content, but especially YA content, have to grapple with. So as we transition to that, I also want to talk about the TV show 13 Reasons Why, if that's okay. Please, yeah. I'm, I've been wanting to learn more about this show since I first saw headlines on it four or five years ago. So it kind of fits in with this group of TV shows in this particular instance that are grappling with all of these things and how to depict them and tell those stories to a younger audience. Though Zendaya says Euphoria should not be viewed by people under 18 except with explicit, like parental guidance which I think is an interesting aspect of the story but then Sam Levinson the writer director says as somebody who is experiencing it that at that age he would have benefited from seeing that story but maybe people who haven't experienced it would find it a little more troubling this also then gets into trigger culture I have too many thoughts going on back to the idea of 13 reasons why Netflix show came out in 2017. I've only watched the first season, and I find it really difficult to watch. Um, What's the premise of the show? Premise of the show. A girl commits suicide. You know that from the onset of the show, and her name is Hannah. And her, I can't remember, I think it's like her friend, neighbor, he's always had a crush on her. This boy named Clay is gifted these tapes listing out the 13 reasons why she committed suicide, each reason why as a person, and what they did to her to inflict pain. It's based off a YA book, was completely just, I mean, the media had a heyday when it came out. Most notably because in the season finale, there there was a three-minute scene depicting her suicide. Like, the full... Like, if you were a teenager who wanted to commit suicide, you could watch that scene and learn how to commit suicide. So that was, like, as you can imagine, pretty appalling and crazy. I just read a couple years ago, I think two years after it aired, they have taken out that scene because medical professionals were like, you cannot do this. This is damaging. 13 Reasons Why, I think, is a stumbling on the past. So we're talking about shows that are trying to do this thing, that are trying to show these graphic things. I think it is a good, interesting step in the history of it. I would not recommend it to young people. The part I find most troubling that I've not read anywhere, but I'm sure other people are saying, is what I do not like about it is it glorifies suicide, not because it shows this beautiful, romantic, 
step-by-step graphic depiction, but because Hannah gets the thing that people who are teenagers want when they commit suicide. She gets the justice. She gets the redemption. She gets the people to pay attention to her. And I do not like that because I think that is really dangerous and damaging for young people to believe that if I commit suicide and do this melodramatic thing, people will give me the attention I seek. What do you think about that? I love this. And I, I love your distinction between the teacher's responsibility and the artist's responsibility. I was hoping to get there and didn't quite have it fully formed in my brain until you said that. And so where it takes me, I think, is into a conversation about censorship and to kind of say it again, the responsibility of the teacher pedagogically. And so I'm thinking for myself as a history teacher, I maybe want to like pull on our question and push back on our question a little bit and say, or maybe just kind of answer it outright for the sake of conversation and say like, the artist can do whatever she wants. Like I'm not going to censor artists thereby increasing my responsibility as teacher and increasing my responsibility pedagogically to take that art and make decisions that are appropriate and helpful and earnest and authentic and loving and encouraging for my students or for students at large. And so in that way, I'm thinking about the power of you want to interrupt that? I want to interrupt that because sometimes you get on a train and you give me too many thoughts. I abstractly agree with that, but I practically disagree with that. I think of the children, teenagers, young people who are consuming these things with no guidance whatsoever. And I worry about the impact of that. I like artistically, emotionally want to be like, yes, of course the artist gets to do what they want. But I think about the 13-year-old who's watching 13 Reasons Why with no one knowing, which is what a lot of 13-year-olds did. And so that's where I'm like, right, the responsibility of teacher, and I also want to say parent, right, is like when we have young people consuming things without knowing the context of what they're consuming, it's doing things that may have damaging effects. That's beautiful. And so I think this too is where I want to go with it, and this is where I feel true conviction, is in if we were to enter the massive conversation of educational reform, like one of the top things on my personal list would be we need Netflix in our classrooms because I need to be able to watch these shows with my students. And the tool that we use in the history classroom that I absolutely love that comes out of the International Baccalaureate Program is the OPCVL, the Origin, Purpose, Content, Values, and Limitations of a Source. And so what would it look like to have a teacher like you sit down with your students and watch 13 Reasons Why and do an OPCVL of the show? Who made this? Point out to the students like why this program was made. Let's talk, teach them about what Netflix is and like how it exists to make a profit. And let's talk about the purpose of the television show. Let's talk about what's on it. What's the value for our community like in particular, and what are the limitations of this show for our community and the type of environments we're wanting to cultivate and foster? I promise I'm not being contrarian, but now I disagree with that. (laughs) Mostly because, yes, that would be wonderful, but it would take the fun out of it for the students, right? They watch Riverdale. They watch 13 Reasons Why. 
because it is away from the adult gaze or so they believe. And so I wonder what would happen if all of a sudden I showed 13 reasons why in a classroom. It's an interesting question as an English teacher, right? Because I think that's what happens when I choose books is they become a book they read for class rather than a book. Maybe they will remember in years as a book they enjoyed. But when a teacher chooses it and says, let's talk about this in an educational way, they see through it and they see it as educational. Where I think sometimes if a show is well done, it can mostly have responsibility for the story or the artist's responsibility. I like the way you framed that with education snuck in and they don't even know it. I say that, I, I kind of hate myself for saying that. Can I say that? Sure, absolutely, you can say that. Because I'm immediately thinking Jason Reynolds would scold me for believing that, that we need to sneak in education for young people because they are so fully formed and I don't need to sneak in education for them. So I'm now disagreeing with myself. <laughs> well, I think it speaks to the complexity of this. And I think... One thing that is so compelling and fascinating and proof of the significance of this conversation is that I kind of feel like other than like my most immediate convictions I try to talk about, I don't have a lot of answers on most of this. Like I don't have my opinion fully formed ever because I wake up the next day and it's a little bit different. I I want to push back a little bit and say that I think in an extremely talented teacher's hands, it's possible, which is why I think teaching pedagogical methods or giving talented teachers the resources and space they need to do what they can do, it would go really well. Uh, I think students would be pleasantly shocked and deeply moved by you showing 13 Reasons Why in the classroom because I think it would be an elevation of what they feel is part of the hidden curriculum of the school, that being that which all of them are watching and learning from, but none of the adults are talking about. And so I'm all for busting hidden curriculum. And so it might be a truism, I might need to think about it more, that students are always going to have something that's happening outside of the gaze and purview of educators, but I guess there's part of me that's kind of this punk rock belief or desire to bust through it and say like I want to talk about the things you're watching and the things you're digesting and the things that are teaching you how to be a citizen and I want to do it as bluntly as possible and quit acting like there's this curtain between us there are two main things that was a lot of really incredible things you just said one I love the phrase hidden curriculum and I think it's the right of young people to have hidden curriculum I think it is really punk rock and it is the part of counterculture that teenagers thrive on to have something that's hidden away from the gaze of adults. Two, I wonder if part of our disagreement is because I'm a middle school teacher and you are a high school teacher. Also, I have to say that I watched Looking for Alaska, this is my second time watching it with Kyle. He greatly identified with Dr. Hyde. He is a late 30s very serious teacher who can be playful but can say these big abstract philosophical statements and like leave a room silenced as Kyle regretted but I think truthfully so he compared me to the eagle this over eager type who like loves so deeply but comes off a little clumsy in their execution because like their sincerity and enthusiasm and earnestness is funny to kids and I think that's often my role 
sometimes not, right? I'm capable, I think I'm capable of other things, but often in a room full of students, they find me kind of goofy. I also think that's the age. Whenever I have tried to bring up hidden curriculum, they find it hilarious. They don't take it serious at all. Where I think high schoolers can. It gives you credibility, where for me, they're like, oh, Miss Nelson. So I think that's also part of where our disagreement is coming, is sixth graders are not capable of me looking at hidden curriculum with them, I think, in the way that juniors in high school are with you. I think that's a great point, and I think that's really important to point out. And it it is even in this space causing me to be more precise, I think, with what I believe and what I'm trying to say in this space as opposed to just trying to make a point. And I think that is the real conviction and the real desire is a faith in the process of giving them the tools to go back to Netflix when they're alone in the room at 1 a.m., watching 13 Reasons Why, and have the tools that they learned in your classroom to effectively critique what they're watching, which is kind of obvious in maybe some circles, but I also think it's worth pointing out, especially in the context of this conversation of, like, what's the responsibility of the teacher, what's the responsibility of the author? I think it may be obvious in some circles, but I think a lot of parents and teachers, it's not obvious. Right, it's why Jason Reynolds talks about we have to talks about how we have to equip young people with the language to process what is happening. Is as teachers, we can give them the language to process what is happening in the TV shows or the books that they're reading within their hidden curriculum within their teenage world, and hopefully, like, give them the tools. Right, that's what teenagehood's about. Is like you have taught them how to make decisions. So when they try out these dangerous habits or make not great decisions they have the language and the ability to process what's happening in a way that's not going to lead them to greater danger that's wonderfully said and i danger is like a key word here like danger health safety like those are very real things that uh, i think can be good guides through this tricky complex mess that we're talking about right like um obviously those terms can be wrought themselves with depending on who's deciding and who has the power to decide what is healthy, what is safe, what is good, and that's the censorship part of it. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that Looking for Alaska is yearly one of the top 10 books requested to be censored in America. But do you know why? I. Go ahead. Yes or no? I saw, I mean, language, sexuality, and smoking were like three things I saw. So the main reason it is banned in the book, there is a very clinical, terrible blowjob scene. And that is, to my understanding, the primary reason it's banned, which gets into, can I tell a quick little anecdote? How do you say the word? Anecdote. When I was in teacher programs, um, another English teacher talked about the book. Oh, what is it called? Sherman Alexander's, I can't remember. It's this book. I know what you're talking about. Well, the viewers don't. The listeners don't. Google it. <laughs> you're worried about the time. In this YA book, uh, there's he writes a little ditty song about masturbation, and she had parents push back, and she was like, you think your children are learning about masturbation from this book? And that's how I feel about looking for Alaska's blowjob scene. It's like, you think your teenagers are being exposed to terrible blowjobs in a book? Okay. Precisely, right? And that's the whole hidden curriculum part of like these kids are learning how to be citizens from 
the vast majority of their education is happening outside the school building. And so what does that mean for a teacher and an educator and a young adult author, if that is a fact? And it's, it's in some ways maybe why we love John Green so much, I'm wondering now, is if it's like, okay, if it's in his hands, we're okay, right? Like that, it's, it's our just deep, devout faith in his project and what he's doing and his humanism and how he cares for and loves community and the world and individuals. And it's like, okay, as long as you're getting it from him, we'll be all right. And I think because his answer within his books is the responsibility is to the artist. And then he uses his vlogs and his other mediums to explore the responsibility of the teacher. And I think that balance is so well done. Yeah. Yes. Well said. I think we may not have time to fully unpack it, but one last piece I want to throw in what I was needing a reminder of was that sort of crowdsourcing of narrative and using the internet in clever ways as John Green does leads me to this space to kind of like tack on another question to our central question. So what is the responsibility of the author? What is the responsibility of the viewer? I think comes in play here in the sense that, and this gets to again, the like OPCVL stuff, but teaching students to ask and answer the question, am I, Am, are my interests and what I'm interested in driving the show or is the show driving my interests? Does that make sense? And I think with, if we were to take that lens and apply it to looking for Alaska, we would fall out on a positive side. So if we were to use that, if I'm talking maybe for myself, of like, uh, I think it's a good balance there of like this this piece of art that's being produced to make money but not like be so cheesy and so lame like Transformers that it's just being made to make hundreds of millions of dollars for production companies. But it is kind of niche. It is kind of indie. And it is like approaching these quality things. But it's also probably making some money. It's on Hulu. It's very well known. It's very popular. So it's like this, it strikes a balance that I can feel okay about. I'm pausing because I don't, I don't know if that question applies to YA viewers. Go ahead. I like to have a dialogue. I like for you to speak too. Well, unpack that a little bit. What do you mean? I think I keep saying young people. That just feels like the best way to describe how I view them. Um, they are still forming themselves. They are still consuming art to find out who they are and how to construct their identity. I don't think they are caught up yet with capitalist enterprise and who's funding what, right? They just want stories that help them explore these questions that feel really immediate to their daily life, that help explain their pain and their experiences and their sense of who they are. So I I don't know how I feel about that. That's a fair point and probably back to my high school bias, right, of how I immediately start leaning on my secondary school impressions for analyzing these things. Because like an eighth grader is not going to be able to like fully dig in, nor do I think they want to. I wouldn't have as an eighth grader. Which then maybe kind of leads to an answer to our question of responsibility, like kind of what you've already said, that it's teacher, parents, and author kind of all shared that. Is that kind of where you're landing maybe? Right, and I think especially that authors just can't launch things out into the world that have 
no context within the book or the TV show itself because a lot of these kids are consuming them without parents or teachers. And so they can't be so destructive. They can't be so artistic, right? I, I read some really dark stuff. But as an adult, I feel like I have the tools. A lot of young people do too, but a lot don't. And so I think just launching a piece of art into the world that's meant for young people without some kind of context that balances it out or gives them a way through is really destructive. But I also don't think people do it that much. This gets me to a question, and maybe we can use it as a teaser for something we'll talk about either on the next episode or a future episode, but to dig in on the responsibility of the teacher and really hone in and focus on that. And I would love to hear your thoughts on drip. So I'm referencing one of the videos where John Green is interviewing Denny Love. Denny Love, who played the colonel, and the colonel said he was shocked by uh, John Green's drip and his knowledge of what's going on in young adult life and young adult world. And so it makes me wonder to what extent a teacher has a responsibility to stay abreast um, or something like that. You're too much of a high school teacher. That sounds boring. No, <laughs> we can do that. So maybe we won't talk about that, and I will just throw that question out there. Um, we had other things to touch on. Is there anything you want to throw out there uh, before we kind of wrap it up, or do you want to keep going? No, I think that's great. Truly? I do. I think we – I liked how we revisited some of the things about responsibility and things we touched on last time. So I feel good. We did not talk about Manic Pixie Dream Girl any today. Are you okay with that? Too much time has been devoted to that nonsense, so yes. Okay. Well, I think we will end it there, and we have not decided on what we're going to approach next, but tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Reach out to us. Make contact. Give us some ideas of things that might be interesting to talk about, but thanks for listening. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Kay. Okay.